Colossians 3 uh, on page 1184 of the Church Bibles. It's Colossians 3 verses 1 to 14. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have made against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And the second reading is in Romans 12, um, verses 1 and 2, which is on page 1139. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as Tim has uh, said, this is the second in our series on worship, worship with our lives, Romans 12, 1 to 2. Great help if you have it in front of you, page 1139. One holiday, I visited a church, and I started talking to the leader after the service, and we compared notes about leading a church and some of the challenges. And he mentioned one to me, the member of the congregation who sits near the front with their arms crossed, with a clear message and expression to the leader, now you bless me. The musician's preacher and leader's sole task during the time of worship was to ensure he felt blessed as a result of what happened in the one and a half hours of Sunday worship. However, as we saw last week and we shall see tonight, that's a misunderstanding of the biblical nature of worship. If you came last week, don't be too surprised that I'm covering some similar ground again. Often an issue is so important, it appears and reappears in Scripture as if to underline its significance. And our worship is one of those topics, hence some repetition. The Apostle Paul's starting point is God's mercy. He has spent Romans chapters 1 to 11 setting this out, 
specifically God's mercy in the Father sending Jesus the Son to die for sinners, so justifying them by faith and making them his sons and daughters, family members, and if members of his family, heirs. So, in view of God's mercy, which of course Paul had personally experienced as one who'd persecuted the church, but had experienced God's mercy and grace, there is a great incentive for holy living. John Stott pithily sums it up this way. In the New Testament, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. Religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. Paul appeals to his listeners to respond to God's mercies in two specific ways. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And secondly, do not conform to this world's values, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Firstly, offering our bodies. This sacrifice is to be holy and pleasing to God in the same way an Old Testament sacrifice involved offering an unblemished, perfect animal which had no defect. In short, you offered God your very best. It's described as a spiritual act of worship. And the Greek word used is logikos, which has an intriguing possible double meaning. The first one is reasonable. It's reasonable. Offering ourselves to God is the only sensible, logical, and appropriate response to God's mercies towards us. It's a reasonable response. The other meaning, possibly, is it's rational. Offering the whole of ourselves in worship, mind and heart, is an act of intelligent, rational worship. It's a rational being, considering the different relative positions of almighty God and weak humanity, we will see that praising God is the rational thing to do. And this sacrificial worship is not just carried out in a church building. It involves our daily lives and tasks, for those are our worship too. Yes, I'm going to church to worship God, and I'm going to the shop, to the office, to school, to work, to worship God. Some of the great cathedrals of our country had some of the best workmanship of their day. And some of the things that the workmen did can only be seen by the angels and by God. Only if you go right, right up high can you see the quality of the stonemasons and the builders. Because you offered to God your worship, the work that you had would, had to be of the very best. And that's why many still stand and many evoke admiration. And we often talk about giving our hearts to God. But Paul says, actually, no, we must offer our bodies as our spiritual act of worship. For if worship is only an inner, abstract relationship without any expression of specific acts of service performed by our bodies, that worship won't please God. It's a similar thought to James 1, chapter 1, verse 27, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress 
and to keep oneself from being polluted by this world. It's a surprise, isn't it? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is spending three hours in church and worship. No, it's to look after orphans and widows in their distress. It's what comes from our worship to God is seen in concrete acts of love and service. However, of course, our bodies can be used in very different and sinful ways. As Paul describes in Romans 3, he sets out the behavior of those who don't fear God. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. By contrast, the Christian disciple uses their body as an instrument of righteousness. Our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring hope to the dying. Our hands will perform those daily tasks that are necessary. Our arms will hug the lonely. Our ears listen in compassion to the brokenhearted. Of course, in order to do that, we need to be alert and available for God's use. Beth Hibbert Hingston, one of our mission partners serving God in Central Asia, shared last week that each day she asked God, what do you want me to do today, Lord? And it soon becomes clear. Secondly, we respond to God's mercies by renewing our minds so we are transformed as people. Disciples of Jesus should refuse to conform to the world's ways. So the J.B. Phillips modern translation of these verses powerfully captures this sense in a memorable way. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Let God remold your minds from within. On different occasions, Jesus instructed his disciples not to follow others' examples. For instance, when praying. The religious leaders loved to be seen praying, even if it meant doing it publicly on street corners, for they wanted to be seen. Do not be like them, said Jesus. We have a choice. Either to model our lives on the pattern of this world's thinking and living, like a chameleon which takes its color from its surroundings, or model our lives on seeking God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If we are to do the latter, if we are to seek God's will, what we will need is a transformation in character and conduct. And that transformation is initiated by the renewing of your mind. It's our thinking that needs changing first. How does that come about? It comes from regular exposure to God's word in Scripture. For that makes clear what God's will is, what he requires. It is, however, the Holy Spirit who enables us gradually to do what God wants. We need to recognize there are two value systems around us. This world's values and God's will are, says John Stott, incompatible, even in direct collision with one another. 
The battleground for this conflict is extensive. It includes the meaning and purpose of life, ambition, sex, and money, just to name a few. The distinguished theologian Karl Barth called Christian ethics the great disturbance because it challenges, interrupts, and upsets the tranquil status quo. This struggle between the self-centered life and the Christ-centered life is particularly intense today as the world reacts to this challenge of the great disturbance that Christianity poses. As a Christian, we show and live that there is another way. It's particularly intense in some specific areas. In his book, The Radical Disciple, John Stott identifies four areas where the two value systems directly clash in the 21st century. But at the heart of the battle is this, and it's my third point, God's call to radical nonconformity. God's call to radical nonconformity. Christians are called to live in the world, but not to be of the world. We are to be nonconformists. And the reason has to do with the very nature of God. Be holy because I am holy. And this theme is expressed both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So in 1 Peter 1, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. We're called as Christians to live in a way that reflects God's character and nature. We can't avoid the fact that God is summoning us to be different, different from a world and a culture that doesn't recognize God's authority in any way. Paul explores this more fully in Colossians chapter 3 that we had read out when he writes about the implications of holy living. And again, it's repeated, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. They are to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. He lists them in graphic and depressing detail. They are to take off their old self and its practices to put on the new self. They are to clothe themselves with a number of positive attitudes and acts reflecting God's holiness. What are the four areas of contemporary culture where the confrontation is most intense? Stott lists them as pluralism, materialism, relativism, and narcissism. Let us consider them each briefly. Pluralism. This rejects Christian claims to uniqueness and condemns as arrogance any attempt to convert anyone. I remember hearing an African Anglican bishop condemn some European anthropologists because they were critical of the church's action in caring for families living nearby who were pygmies. Their growth restriction was in part due to poor diet, and his church was seeking to help them. And their holistic approach involved teaching about improved nutrition and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ for their spiritual needs. The anthropologists objected as an interference with another culture, because in their eyes, every culture was equally valid. 
they should be left alone. The African bishop could only see brothers and sisters in need and was outraged by their attitude. I'm not interested in keeping a human zoo, he declared. From his perspective, as every person is, is made in God's image, he had a duty of care for both his neighbor's physical and spiritual needs. The second contemporary trend is materialism. Now that may seem a little surprising in the face of the fashion for decluttering and living in homes stripped of furniture, though I suspect the cupboards are absolutely stuffed full, but there we are. Christians are not contemptuous about the material world. How could we? Our God is the creator of that world. Rather, it's the dangerous preoccupation with material things at the expense of our spiritual life. In the parable of the sir, the seed that fell among thorns represents the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. By contrast, Paul, writing to Timothy, said that godliness with contentment, contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. We arrive naked and we leave naked. And therefore a life built on the importance of owning and increasing our possessions is ultimately a futile exercise. For the answer to the question about how much a wealthy person left when they died is everything. Benedictine monks have an annual review of their possessions and if they haven't used something in a, in a year, they are obliged to dispose of it. Think about that for a moment. The Christian nonconformist will be a challenge to a world which regards possessions and money as giving significance and status to a person's life. We don't agree. And there will be conflict because we are nonconformists. The third contemporary area of confrontation for the Christian nonconformist is relativism. Relativism, particularly ethical relativism, permeates our culture and has infiltrated the church. As a teenager, as I was in the so-called swinging 60s, for a whole host of reasons, what happened was that the generally accepted basis of behavior, the Judeo-Christian foundation, was attacked and undermined. In particular, that sexual intimacy should be reserved for monogamous, loving, lifelong heterosexual union. One result was that increasingly cohabitation without marriage, living together without being married, even of church members, was and is widely practiced, so dispensing with the key element of commitment essential for marriage. I believe it's true that cohabitation statistically exceeds marriages annually now, with enormous consequences for society. And these can be seen if you study the research of the Marriage Foundation. Jesus called his disciples to obedience and conformity to his ways in this area. So he quotes with approval the creation ordinance in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And he endorsed them personally by adding, 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And the fourth and final contemporary air of confrontation for the Christian nonconformist is narcissism. Narcissus, in Greek mythology, was a handsome young man who caught sight of his reflection in a pond and fell in love with his own image. As a result, he toppled into the water and drowned. Narcissism is an excessive admiration of self. So we are invited to look inside ourselves to explore ourselves for the solution to any problem. We certainly don't need a savior to come to us from somewhere else, for we can be our own savior. And I would suggest an example of this is the fashion for mindfulness. There is a healthy side to stopping, reflecting, and recollection. But it is of limited value because we are the limited people in search of that solution. Christian meditation, practiced for centuries, is different. We too pause, reflect, and recollect. But our focus is not on ourselves, but through Scripture and the help of the Holy Spirit, on God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They will reveal ourselves to ourselves from outside ourselves and provide us with the resources to be transformed. The fundamental question is this, who is Lord? Is the church the Lord of Jesus Christ and so can edit what it likes and reject what it dislikes? Or is Jesus our teacher and Lord so that we obey his teaching in all these areas? Why call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. What we need to wake up to if we have been asleep, what we need to wake up and smell the coffee, as they say, is that there are two cultures, two value systems, two standards, two lifestyles, two ways to worship. There is the passing fashion of the world around us or the revealed good and pleasing will of God. And incidentally, there isn't a third option. There isn't the Laodicean church option of the lukewarm, half hot and half cold option. It's either God's ways or the world's ways. Which is going to be the one which dominates our life? And the choice has always been there from the very beginning. This is presented starkly by Joshua. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And serving the Lord will mean worshipping him with our lives. Let us pray. Just a moment of quiet. 
as we reflect on the stark choice that God's people have always faced. It is a costly choice. It's a choice that will bring us into conflict, at times with our culture, with our national values. But as Joshua put it so clearly, either we go with the culture around us or with the living God. And it's a personal decision. Heavenly Father, we say that we want to make a difference. But perhaps we haven't fully recognized a world which is turning away from you and the cost of seeking to worship you with our lives. Help us to face up to that, to understand it, and to be prepared for that cost as we consider your amazing mercies to us. Help us, Lord, not just to say, Lord, with our lips, but in the worship with our lives. Amen.